friends, colleagues, and sustainable eaters, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Rachel Mazak. Rachel, welcome to Brain Buzz. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Um, we're really excited to have you on. Tell us and tell our audience a little bit about who you are. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, like you said, I am Rachel Mazak, and I probably don't need to say my name again. <laughs> but That's okay. I'm... I'm, uh, yeah, they all know what my name is. Uh, I'm a current master's student in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems here at UBC, and I am a student in the Integrated Studies in Land and Food Systems degree, which is an interdisciplinary degree that kind of covers all manner of things that you'd like to do or look into as far as food systems go. And yeah, I'm just finishing up my second year and preparing my thesis defense as we speak. Fantastic. So, uh, Rachel, let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about uh, what we might learn today on this episode. Great. Yeah. So my work looks at sustainability and how that has been framed or considered in international food guides. And I have worked with 11 documents from around the world looking at how sustainability has been considered and included in these food guides and how people talk about it, basically, and then uh, how that can be put together into a framework for assessing and talking about developing these in the future and as well as um, looking at what food policy might how could change in the future to incorporate more sustainability considerations right so what do you mean by sustainability so you're t- you're talking from a land and food systems perspective right so whenever i think of sustainable diet i think of what can i what diet can i do for a long term <laughs> period like longer than two weeks right that's not what we're talking about well, uh, it's complicated, but yes. I mean, it's not no and and yes. Yes okay. and. So it's a complicated picture, but as far as sustainability goes, it's more about systems and the way that systems work together. So yes, when we think about sustainability, we think about recycling and we think about sustainable diets. People are all of the like, you know, plant-based this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Gluten-free, but that's, vegan, it, yeah, or that's not all of it, right? It's not all... That's not the end of the story. So the framework that I work with uses five different domains, and that means sort of five different aspects to approach sustainability from. So yes, there's the sort of environment and ecosystem perspective that we often think about with whatever, quote, sustainable diets might be. But then there's also things like food security and agriculture that are important. So that's production, that's access, um, equitable systems for people being able to utilize and find food that they need uh then there's also markets and value chains so that's looking at the economics of things and that incorporates um the whole production processing transport system that we also think about a lot with food miles and things like that right Uh, so that's how far our food travels and then there's uh, other domains that include, of course, the health and nutrition aspect, which is a primary sort of frame or domain that these food guides are developed from because they're about, you know, talking to people um, and informing them about what healthy diets might be. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a main point. But then there's also, uh, what else? Oh, and then there's a socioculture and political aspect. So that talks about food literacy, nutrition literacy, reading labels, food skills, things like that. So those are also pieces to incorporate in these food guides that sort of broaden the spectrum and it's more than just like eat X amount of sodium and don't eat Y amount of fried things or something. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many cool things to talk about. I mean, I coming from <laughs> a family where we would eat anything in front of us. This is like <laughs> my perspective on food literacy has kind of grown over the years since I've been uh, become an adult or pseudo adult. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, what is the main things out of those five things that you focus on in your work? Are you are you focusing on all of these things? How can you focus on all these things? Like. I think of transportation as just being a huge, uh, huge like system that I would never even think about. Like people don't think about when they're eating their food, right? Like how did this food get to this plate? Uh, 
I don't know where to start. Right. Other yeah. than like, yeah. it came from a farm somewhere yeah. at some point, maybe. Exactly. Or, or a lab. I don't know, right? So you're feeling right now what people who develop these food guides feel all the time. They're like, well, how do we think about the transportation piece? Especially we're talking Canadian. The Canadian food guide, the new one just came out in January. Mm-hmm. And... When people are developing a Canadian food guide, you have to think about, well, how are we going to transport food up to the Northern Territories and how are we going to, how are those people going to access it? Do they have the skills and literacy in any part of the country to be able to understand what we're saying here and get the food that we're recommending? And so, yes, uh, again, the answer to your question is yes. And we're focused, I'm not like focusing deep down on each of those things, but what I was doing is understanding how each of those domains and specific subconcepts under those domains were kind of manifested in these food guides. And so we can get a picture of what's out there in the field internationally, how food systems and food recommendations are presented and talked about. And then that gives us a picture of where we can improve, what we're missing, what we can do better and how it, and then also being able to measure in the future how that actually impacts food choices as well as other policy that comes from food guides. Rachel, when you talk about uh, literacy, the typical connotation with liter- literacy is the ability to read. And I think that's a really good point. And I, But I think that the distinction that maybe we want to make, and maybe I'm entirely incorrect here, is we're talking specifically about literacy surrounding food and uh, diet as a result of food labeling and stuff like that. Is that correct? Is that an, a fair take on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a part of it. It's not... I mean, it's like the ability to, if we're equating it to ability of read, like the ability to eat, well, okay, we all probably have that one. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's also the... Um, the other things that surround our, our food and our choices that we've, it's changed a lot. So we didn't have thousands of options when we walked into grocery stores, you know, a hundred years ago, we had, you know, less processed food. We had less, less choice. We only have what was locally available to us more or less. So as our food systems have changed, our interactions and our understanding of them has also changed. And the average person doesn't necessarily know where their food comes from, how it's getting to their plate, the the different components and inputs and outputs and all the things that had to be done to get that one meal together just, mm-hmm. you know, in one box. Perhaps they're going and buying a, a ready-to-eat meal, yeah. which is great, but there's a lot of components to that. There's mm-hmm. the growing, there's the farmer, there's the land, there are the insects interacted with those plants, then there's the transportation, the processing, all those steps. And so what literacy in the food sense is broadly about is the ability to have the tools to think about those things. You're not going to know all of them Mm -hmm. all the time when you pick up an apple, like where this came from, but to understand that, you know, it was grown somewhere in the interior, BC maybe, that it was transported here, you know, 100 miles. And and so it just has these other pieces. And when I know that I'm thinking about it a little bit more and I have this sort of broader base of literacy that allows me to use it better for my health, for the health of my community, people around me, to – you know, literacy also includes skills and it's not just about reading the label, but then it's about like combining that with other things to know how it's going to interact with your body and yeah. the other ingredients in in a dish or yeah. things like that. Like literacy in sense is also about just like your knowledge about food in, in general, right? Because right. like if you're reading a label and you're looking at something that has a certain X amount of trans fat versus like regular fat, mm-hmm. uh, how do you know what, it, what that means? Is that actually a good thing or a bad thing? What what are you actually consuming is a big part of the literacy is like not just being able to read and understand what it's saying. It's understanding what it actually means. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's where I fail. And I think a lot of people do fail. Uh, they can read a label. They can say, okay, this is how many things per 
seven seven crackers or seven mm-hmm. cookies right yeah. uh mm-hmm. but really in the context of what's actually in those products or how they got there it's it's very conflated well, right well you have those those seven crackers and you've got 25 percent of your sodium intake and you're like well that's that's quite a bit but i still have 75 to go but then you realize oh i actually had 14 crackers and that doesn't include all the other things that i've been eating throughout yeah. the day that might push me over what would otherwise be maybe the recommended intake i suppose so mm-hmm. um and also yeah. being able to make i would imagine it probably also be comparing what your body type is and who you are as a male or female and what the recommendations are and adjusting for that too, right? Exactly. So you're hitting on a lot of the complicated aspects that go into what food literacy is, what you know dietary recommendations might be, because we are all individuals with different abilities to utilize the food and then also different abilities to pay for access, yeah. um, to read those labels, to understand what trans versus saturated fats are. Mm. And also a lot of those things, those labels are are based on um, our best estimates on our most up-to-date nutrition science of like how bodies interact and how we get this food you know like how it's made and all those different things so it's already based on the the reduced science to the point where we need to understand like what people need in their diets but then like how to also measure those things in in food and an individual people through their daily intake is also challenging so yeah i mean when you have when you have so many like so much variation in people and what their their bodies need it's really difficult i imagine to say this is what a recommended diet is for someone you know they you always see like the out of a recommended like 2500 2, calories or something like that right mm-hmm. that is a very rough estimate of what an average is mm-hmm. and that's what you kind of have to do when you're talking with these large nations and international populations when you're talking about what's considered healthy or what's supposed to be falling into these food guides i imagine yes and a lot of that is is based on i mean it is so the recommendations are based on science and our best science available to us but still that science we have to recognize our limitations a lot of it's still done in a in a western context some of it's still done solely on university students because they're a population of convenience it's also often very focused on men and the, a lot of the nutrition studies are done just on individual like sexes and um ethnicities and things that mm maybe aren't applicable to an entire population. And that kind of also can bring up the question that I sometimes get is like, well, if it's so hard to do this on an individual basis, why do we even have these recommendations? Like, what are they even good for, right? That kind of lends that question. Mm -hmm. It's like, why do we even need them? Well, for many reasons, they are about general guidance. They're not, I equate it to like driving, right? We have uh, rules of the road. We stay within the lines. We stop at stop signs. We we all drive on the same side of the road and so they're generally there to keep us safe but we don't have specific you know road rules that say at this stop sign you get out of your car and you walk around it and then you shut the door like this you know so (laughs) those are kind of more prescriptive individual things that we make on a daily basis based on what we need to do and where we need to go so these guidelines are like sort of rules of the road in that sense that keep us all sort of moving in the same direction and safe it doesn't mean that stuff doesn't happen that it that cars cars don't break down or the accidents don't happen or whatever but it just means that we have these general rules to keep us moving forward so i think that's uh, the best a model I can use to, de- excri- to describe their usefulness, but then they also are used in so many other ways. So they're used for these nutrition studies to help us understand, you know, what are the recommended daily intakes? How are people following these diets? What are their different cultures look like? What different demographics? So that research is going on right now at the university here as well, just like how people are using this information, you know, how much they understand it. And 
then it also goes to inform our, I'm sure in schools, you've probably interacted with the food guides. Mm -hmm. They, you know, I know growing up in the United States, we always had our, my pyramid or my plate, you know, that was talked about most years in our curriculum. Mm -hmm. So it's taught to our children at a very young age. It also is used as a policy signal to be able to show uh, other policymakers, maybe who are working on agriculture policy or production and transportation industry policy and how that influences their um, policymaking. It still comes from some of these guidelines that our national governments spend a lot of time, money, and energy making well for their individual population. So it has uses, even if a single individual maybe doesn't follow it to the T. I can't even say, I can't say I do for sure, and I can't say any individual out there really does, you know, do these exact things, but they're more like, you know, yeah. stop at the stop sign. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. General guidelines, like it's, it's better to eat vegetables and fruits than, you know, junk food and soda all the time right, right people don't really need to be told to listen to um <laughs> ads about drinking more coca-cola but they probably need to be reminded more often than not to like yeah have another scoop of broccoli you know or something that <laughs> yeah. you know nobody's out there advertising for broccoli so that's part of the food literacy thing too is combating some of those fad diets something that are unfounded in science and the advertising and, and marketing that goes to yeah. our you know to our children and that, that we're constantly surrounded by yeah. you say that you're working with international food guides I have not looked at a food guide since I was in elementary school. Our uh, element, are, first off, do you think the food guides are doing a, a good job at you know informing the population of how to you know actually eat effectively and sustainably, or is it, do you think that the main purpose of these food guides, like you've said, is more about you know pushing these systems or pushing these uh, these you know the agricultural fields and all these other fields or, or uh, political uh, fields to kind of say we need to promote this type of guideline is it more for those bigger systems or is it actually for the individuals that are looking at these food guides yes so the i mean what you mean by good job yeah. is of course can be <laughs> very debated, subjective right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> can be can be subjective and i mean very qualitative like i could wave my hand and say yeah they're doing the yeah. job of being available for people to look at yeah uh i do know that in canada it's a widely yeah, at least looked at document by Canadians. Uh, the 2007 Food Guide, so the last edition, was the second most downloaded document in all of Canadian government's documents after some like tax form. So <laughs> T4 probably. Uh, exactly. Uh, and uh, even in the few weeks, well, I suppose it's been a few months now since the new Food Guide has come out, it's been downloaded by millions of Canadians. And so they've at least looked at right. it. Uh, what impact that has on individuals it, it needs it's, to be based in more like evidence-based science yeah, to say that, yes, people are following them. And then beyond that, yes, it has an effect on their diet, their lifestyle, their literacy, their understanding. Mm -hmm. So I don't know for sure, but I, I have read something where some 70% of Canadians have seen the Food Guide, but less than 1% could tell you what the serving sizes are and like what goes in those groups. And yeah, that was from the old version. Yeah. So that's kind of been tried to, uh, it's been approached by the government and, and taken in other ways to make this new edition a little more accessible for people. And it, so it actually does get rid of serving sizes. It gets rid of those sort of more prescriptive mm -hmm. nutrition, nutrient focused things um, and serving sizes and starts to open it up to be more about the context of eating, which is what uh, is one of the sort of main findings of my work is that a lot of these food guides, as they're being updated to include explicit sustainability references so those sustainability from the five sort of areas that i talked about earlier they as they're updating them they include more of that context of eating so that's like eat with others cook more of your meals mm -hmm. um share your skills with your family uh you know try to eat local foods and just understand what labels mean and talk about marketing with the, with your children so right. they're they're including more of these things that they're 
general guidelines and they're less about like eating five cups of broccoli a day or it's whatever. It's a broader it's, approach. It's, so, yeah, it sounds like they're targeting that literacy aspect that we were mentioning previously mm -hmm. is, you know, the idea of kind of eating at home and understanding what you're putting into your meals. You know, you don't need to add salt to everything contrary to what every cooking show tells you. Like, you know, I... Maybe it's yeah. going against like the the idea that like being stringent and telling someone exactly what to do will not actually work as effectively than <laughs> yeah. being like, right. hey, do what works for you, but this is a way to do it better for everybody. Yeah. I think that that makes sense to me that they would go take that approach or at least try mm -hmm. to take that approach. Exactly. So if you if you as an individual value those specific serving guides, like you yeah. need to know exactly what it is, you talk to your local dietitian. You know, mm -hmm. the government's doing a great job of making those available provincially at least to people. And the food guide itself is there, yes, to do that more literacy or context of eating approach where it's it's about again your individual choices and knowing that I think that they're just doing a maybe what I do think they're doing a better job at is showing the the broader implications and externalities of the way that you're eating and the, the where your diets come from and just being more aware of those things. I think that we talk a lot about education being an important piece. Well, I think part of that is just our awareness of the world around us. And I think that in bringing those other things into these food guides, so a lot of previous versions have mostly just focused on the sort of health and nutrition, but broadening those to include these sort of other domains of what, quote, sustainability might be mm -hmm. has been, I think, at least a step in the in bringing people that awareness yeah you know? absolutely yeah that's really cool so let's get into let's get into work that you're doing yeah <laughs> and what you're now that we have a better idea of what you know food sustainability is and food literacy and things these things um what are you doing what like what is the work that you're doing <laughs> good question yes so i have used a united nations food and agriculture organization database to find and review uh food guides from countries around the world and in doing a global review found that there were 11 documents covering 15 countries that or like in encompassing 15 countries that included some reference or attempts or supporting documentation with sustainability with quote sustainability considerations and that was as of 2016 there are a few more that have been published since about 2018 but there's nothing that's really explicit right. in the sense but there are four main countries that I uh, found with explicit sustainability references in their guidelines and that might mean uh, so the qatar for example is one of those countries and that manifests itself in the qatar guidelines as uh, eat healthy well uh considering the environment or something along those lines right. so they do specifically say that your food comes from the environment and so the other countries are sweden brazil and germany that have explicit sustainability references which is kind of an interesting sample in and of itself qatar sweden brazil mm -hmm. and, and germany mm -hmm. uh and it's it's showing me that there are many different countries and contexts for which these types of recommendations work and or are manifested and then that it can be done in ways that are culturally appropriate based on where your country is coming from certainly yeah there i mean those four nations apart from sweden and germany being european they're that's a pretty good sampling of yeah, very different look yeah very diverse and mm -hmm. i i mean from the cuisine perspective i mean they don't really have much pretty overlap diverse. no yeah incredibly diverse different. so if you can incorporate that kind of thing into those four why wouldn't you be able to incorporate it elsewhere? Exactly. And the interesting thing is that each of those four countries and the other countries included in the analysis have their own sort of individual backstory about why that might be a particular focus. You know, so Qatar, for example, they do deal a lot with resource scarcities and obesity is uh, and um, diabetes are big issues in Qatar. So like they wanted to focus on the health aspect as well as the like, yeah, we, we're kind of running out of sustainable fish options in our mm -hmm. area and we're running out of water and things like that. So it's uh, just dependent on the sort of country's context for why they want to step forward in 
I don't know, you can say forward, wherever, they, why they want to make that transition into including more of these environment recommendations. You make a really good point. I think this is going to be like a hot topic in the, in the coming years, if it's not already, is this idea of water scarcity and food scarcity. Uh, we are in Canada. We are quite lucky in the yeah. sense that we have some of the freshest, like the most fresh water in the world, is it not? Nest, Nestle ne bottles their water, you know, yeah, couple, for free. Yeah, for free, <laughs> a couple hundred kilometers from here. Yeah. Not, not even that, a hundred and yeah. something. So we have like, we have the luxury of not having to worry so much immediately about this water scarcity issue, but across the world, I imagine it's a huge concern and that might be a, a driving factor for them, for some of these uh, countries to be doing that. Do you think, or is it just like a, do you think other countries are going to, other countries are going to follow suit uh, when it comes to sustainability? Do you think, or do you think it should have happened a long, long time ago? I guess is another question. Well, uh, yes. Yeah, so I think that it does depend on, on the country and, and what their purposes might be. Brazil's not necessarily dealing with the same resource scarcities as Qatar, but they are dealing a lot with the deforestation of a growing cattle industry that's going mm -hmm. to feed more and more people, more and more beef and dairy products. Mm -hmm. So they have their own individual ecosystems to protect. Qatar was feeling the pinch of water scarcity. And I think that, yes, as countries start to feel this more, they're going to be looking in this direction to think about, well, how are we changing some of the ways we present this information to our our eaters, our consumers in our society, our citizens? Because we, we're not just consumers. We're also people that have autonomy and we make decisions yeah. about eating and about our our citizenry. So I think that that's a part of it. And so they're making those decisions based on who their, their citizens are and what they think and, and their culture and how they think their country can move forward to be starting to signal some of these changes. It's not going to be the silver bullet solution. You know, yeah. it's not going to solve all the problems. It's part of a suite of solutions. And I also don't think that we need to place, we, we cannot be placing all the blame on quote consumers. Or I like to call them eaters because again, <laughs> we're focusing more on the context, right? We're yeah. not just consuming something you have the choice yeah. to Think about the other sort of socioeconomic and cultural aspects mm -hmm. of your diet. But if we're placing too much blame on the consumer, then they might start to feel disempowered or, you know, like I can't make that much change as an individual. So it can't just be about them. And, and then it kind of that ignores the rest of the problem. If we're just telling people in the food guide to say, hey, eat more, whatever, quote, sustainability sustainably might be, then it ignores the rest of the problem, that it's also a system of other issues that comes down to uh, industry and transportation, processing, agriculture, all these other things that, that come into play. And the fact that we have to account for globalization as well, right? Mm -hmm. I imagine, and you've talked a little bit about local food consumption, sustainability in the local like areas. That will play a huge role, imagine, in people's nutrition and their diets as well, right? So if, if rice is a big agricultural like aspect of your country, you're going to eat a lot of rice. Uh, and if you, if you don't like rice <laughs> or you don't want to eat rice, you're, you're going to have a problem when it comes to sustainability and having to transport things and export and import, uh, which I imagine would be miserable if everybody hated rice uh, <laughs> in somewhere that just exports rice constantly or that's their main. Uh, yeah. Or you look, you look in a, you know, again, just to be local for our audience, right. Vancouver, we're not growing rice in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we eat large quantities of rice mm -hmm. so that's what, food, what food's most sustainable as well to transport and yeah. to actively you know export and import would be another big thing too right yeah there's so many there's so many fundamental issues here and i think one that you brought up that really struck me was uh you know to what extent can we place all of the sustainability um all the all of that how, how much of that can be placed on the consumer and how much of that has to be placed elsewhere on other organizing bodies whether it's governmental uh, or international or Hell, maybe mm -hmm. even the the people making the food, growing the food, mm -hmm. could potentially have a conscience and say, "Hey, this isn't. We can't just keep deforesting, you know, Brazil to 
bring more cattle in because eventually there won't be anything left. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that really gets at this bigger issue of, you know, how do we how do we place the not the blame, but how do we place that um, that sense of responsibility on multiple bodies that everybody feels that they have to take on at least their share of it? And I don't know. I I don't know how to solve that problem. And if I did, I wouldn't be sitting here, I suppose. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Again, you're hitting on one of the complexities, one of the many, many complexities of this system. And it presents as what we would call a wicked problem and one of these problems that's just challenging from a lot of different angles. And there aren't a lot. There isn't one solid solution. There yeah. aren't a lot of great solutions in general because it's it's hard and it's not my job to sit here and necessarily point fingers and say you know you do this and you do that but again i'd like to go back to the fact that it's this sort of system of things and i think that food guides are one of those ways we can start to signal some of those changes and that starts to bring in especially if they're done in a way that incorporates uh, thoughtful, evidence-based, culturally appropriate recommendations, it can be part of a tool for moving those other things on the forward. And as far as like uh, policies in the in industry and in manufacturing, policies in ag- agriculture production, you know, there are, we also can't, you know, go back and place all the blame on, on farmers because they're doing a hard job. They're working really hard and there are very few people trying to feed a lot of people around the world. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily their fault. It's no one consumer's choice that is and isn't going to make the sort of change but it's again a system of things that we can't be individually discouraged by the fact that maybe my choice to eat less meat products or fewer dairy products makes it doesn't make big enough change i can't be discouraged by that because it is part of a system and that's Mm -hmm. how change is made it's incrementally Mm -hmm. and it's you know maybe a drop in the bucket but the bucket is full of drops so yeah Yeah. eventually we can get there yeah yeah so it's going to be a suite of things that involve other policies other just changing of mindsets and that's sort of part of what i think the food guide can do is be these guidelines to change some of these like i was saying earlier some of these rules of the road so that we're all driving in a direction that's more efficient uh, efficient and equitable and you know sustainable in the sense that we've thought about these other things and we are not just driving blind following some gps off a cliff (laughs) (laughs) so with with all that in mind and maybe going back to this idea of of the five sustainable sort of frames that we were discussing earlier what would the if you were to redesign say the canadian food guide or the american food guide or hell any any nation's food guide what would you put in to address those five components that you had mentioned previously yeah, so Canada, as you know, did recently update their food guide, and I didn't do a specific analysis of that, but they're, they have, like I said, included some of these more context of eating, these uh, food literacy approaches, and it's there's they've done sort of what's been done internationally in the sense that it's moving when you're when you're trying to incorporate more quote sustainability considerations. Yeah. You're, they're moving in a direction of being less based on servings, less based on particular, you know, weights and nutrients and more about like where and what the food yeah, is, like where it's where, coming from, where it's what, coming from, how to prepare it, you know, how to be eating it with other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which in and of itself isn't a solution. You know, the, the new Canada Food Guide says, you know, eat with other people when you can, which can be challenging. I mean, I'm a student. I yeah you know, eat in front of a screen a lot of the time and I don't get a chance to eat with other people. And so it can be sort of moralizing to tell people, oh, well, eat with somebody else when they don't have those opportunities. Mm. So those are things to balance as well. And it shows how difficult and complex it is when you're developing these these food guides. Uh, I mean, that's a question that, you know, I can talk about what's been done internationally. And I think that how to incorporate some of these things might be for developers to decide that they want to focus on either one or as many as they can. And I'm not saying like, you know, 
all food guides should have all five of these pieces and they should be X, Y, Z relevant and all these things, but that it starts to show there's an opportunity to do this, to incorporate these things. So I would say to have a section that includes some of the the barriers economically, some of the sociocultural aspects, the food security pieces, which the new Canadian food guide does talk a bit about Mm -hmm. indigenous food access and you know the in in the north and how challenging a barrier that can be and then also to incorporate of course the very sound health and nutrition sciences that are, that are out there as well as the we need to think about what environments your food is coming from and you know you can maybe get sustainable fish here but i'm from the midwest of the united states and that's going to be a challenging to get sustainable look we can't even really get local you know ocean or yeah. seawater or right salmon or yeah, yeah like exactly <laughs> yeah you so, can't abide by the 100 mile diet as it is in the middle of, you know. Right. If you're trying to incorporate some of these, like fish is something that's very helpful for you. But then also think about fish is one of the very unsustainable things that we don't do well as far as farming or, you know, catch. So it's complicated. And I think that, yes. So to answer your question more specifically, (laughs) I would try to have a section on or at least a consideration that is evidence-based, culturally appropriate and accessible in a way that talks about each of those sort of five main areas. Sure. And the way, way their food can be sustainable if they are to look for those things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, Rachel, maybe just one last question on this particular topic, but I know you mentioned uh, something out of Qatar's food guide earlier, but if there's one thing that you came across in all your work, like one piece of a really good sound advice um, within one of the food guides that you were reviewing, what, what was that? And, and, you know, what would you tell our listeners about it? Yes. So the the Brazil food guide, I think, has made the biggest shift. And they, I believe this is the, yes, this is their second or so food guide. It was published in 2015. And it includes a recommendation to eat, basically their, their very, their golden rule is to eat as little, as minimally processed food as you can. So they don't have food groupings. They don't have vegetables and grains necessarily. I mean, they talk about types of food, but they don't say you know, eat five servings of this or that. But they say that you should just focus on eating food that is minimally processed and, you know, locally and culturally appropriate, locally available, culturally appropriate. And I think that's about the simplest thing you can do because then the less, you know, we can talk about life cycle analysis of products. We can talk about all the other complicated pieces. But the most evidence we have for what makes a, quote, sustainable choice is that it's close to you. It's close to your culture. It's uh economically available it's less processed because it has to do with less machine work less transportation you know doesn't have packaging doesn't have other things that we have for throwing away you know to unwrap around it mm. and sort of the, the best things for you are the things in the grocery store that don't have a label associated with them <laughs> absolutely well on that note i'll get up on my high horse for a second i've tried to get away from you know taking bags and stuff like so i've got my canvas bag that i have with me in the car and i've gotten yeah, really good do our best that. yeah and so you know i I'd like to think that we can make those little adjustments. And then, you know, even when I go into the grocery store, produce store, like, okay, do I need to put all my onions in a bag? It's like, Mm -hmm. well, probably not. I could probably just put them in the basket and then put them straight in my bag and then away when I get home, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, there may be other ways that we could be doing that. That speaks also to this, like, this idea of, like, this macro management of sustainability too, right? The idea that now we're charged for plastic bags. Uh, Implementing that into our our economic system basically forcing people to spend their own money to not be sustainable (laughs) is a good deterrent, right? I think those are the small steps and those things along with the, uh, you know, adding these things to the food guide so people can read them and understand the impact they're having on the environment and their economic systems and things like that. Those are all things that are being 
behind the scenes, maybe not as like in, in the forefront of our minds, but they really are impacting whether or not you do, you know, take a bunch of bags or, you know, yeah, you sure. bring your canvas bag to, mm-hmm. which I still haven't gotten. Right. <laughs> well, so a bit of it is incentives yeah. that help people. Yeah. A bit of it is also some choice editing where we're telling people, well, you, we just them, yeah. are only offering these quote, more sustainable options. You know, and part of that, again, is just this suite of solutions that we're at a bit of a, optimistically, we're at a bit of a point of a sea change where we are moving in this direction and people are starting to realize these things. But realistically, we also have to understand that it's a privilege to be able to think about some of these decisions every day. When I go to the grocery store, I can spend the time to think about whether or not I can put my onions in a bag or not. But some people don't have the time, money, opportunity to do some of those things. So it's still, we have to to recognize Mm -hmm. that to be able to read, understand, follow these guidelines word for word is still a privileged perspective. And that's something that we all have to deal with on an individual basis, but yeah, uh, to think that uh, I mean, looking at the label and saying, okay, this has this amount of trans fat, so I'm not going to get it. I'm going to buy the better option, the more expensive option. That's quite silly if you think that that's the solution. When really everybody's just looking at like people that are that we're concerned about when it comes to consumption is they're looking at the price. If this, is this a cheaper option? Uh, yeah. I mean, for the majority of people, it's not. Should I spend two extra dollars on a green pepper if it's a local pepper? You know, I mean, that's that's not always what's in the forefront of people's minds, and right. so that also needs to be addressed. I imagine when it comes to that, what are the alternatives? You exactly. Know, instead of taking like this like very sugary cereal, how do I have a better option for breakfast for my kids or for for me? Right. Exactly. There are these other levers that need to kind of be pulled and turned in these other ways to figure out how we're moving forward. You know, like I was saying, driving in this direction, and it's yeah, it's got to be about many things it can't just be that we tell people to eat differently because that's not going to solve the problem because yeah like the the cheaper options need to be inversed almost we Mm -hmm. know a lot of the time that the fresher foods or i don't know organic foods you know debatably better or not for the environment but still are more expensive and you know in a lot of ways if we are able to switch where we're actually internalizing the costs of those externalities that come along with processed foods or you know the the cost more costly environmental foods such as like you know we know based on science that it's beef products to internalize some of those costs would actually send our meat prices skyrocketing because if we're starting to include well we have to value the amount of carbon dioxide put off into the air to make this pound of beef it's a little bit different than the pound of flour or the pound of lettuce or whatever it is Mm -hmm. so in changing some of those price points to internalize some of those costs we can start to otherwise incentivize people who either can't or find other reasons not to make this whatever sustainable choice might be yeah i think that speaks a lot to the implications right yeah certainly like how does this impact the everyday person that's not really necessarily worried about the environment first they're worried about how do i get food in my belly how do i you know eat what i need to eat Mm -hmm. uh and usually price is a big big factor it's a huge factor and if your government has this document that's starting to signal the fact that these foods should be more available for people, they're going to be better for the environment, they're going to be better for our health, you know, especially in Canada with a socialized healthcare. We're going to want healthy people so we're not paying yes. a bunch of money to keep people healthy, <laughs> yeah. you know. So when a government puts out these guidelines, then it's starting to be a signal to change some of those things. And maybe, you know, local or provincial policies can start to incorporate, well, our more processed foods are going to start to internalize some of these costs or our other mm. products are going to start to change. And it's not going to be the food guide alone, but it's going to be part of this suite of solutions. Sure, yeah, yeah this sort of overarching set of interventions that we can eventually get to the Mm -hmm. point where these better options are more available. It's exactly like what they call in health psychology primary prevention. Uh, The idea that we want to address these things before it's an issue, you know, so primary prevention being proper eating, proper nutrition, you know, proper exercise, sleep, things like that, before you have a chronic illness or these other illnesses that are 
no longer primary prevention because it's already yeah. occurring. Now you yeah. need to seek medical attention, you know, healthcare, get medication, all these other things. Yeah, like how, you know, can we avoid a bunch of the population, you know, developing obesity, diabetes, diabetes or obesity yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. As, just as a result of simply changing their diet, changing their exercise and sleep right. habits, you know, stuff like that, I think are really fundamentally important. Yes. And um, whether or not yeah. an individual reads or follows the food guide, having your country or your government at least have a document that says this is what they're standing what they're for yeah, is exactly. going to be a stepping stone, you know? So it would definitely be a gap if your country didn't have one of these, which there are many countries around the world, especially in low and low and middle income countries that don't have food guides at all. And it's still just a signaling piece for people to start to think about some of those other implications. And sure. if it's not there as an education piece, as a policy signal, as all these other things, then like, well, it's like having a company or, policy or almost, right? It's just right. like, this is our policy. It might be unwritten, but now we've written it yeah. <laughs> so that yeah. everybody can see. Yeah. You know, may not necessarily <laughs> follow it every day, but yeah. it's there for the sort of general audience. Yeah. So everybody yeah. knows this is, this is what we're backing. And right? it plays this many, many yeah. roles because yeah. it's there. Absolutely. General guiding principle. All right. Perfect. Let's take a quick brain break. When we come back, uh, Rachel will dive into some mis- misconceptions with you and uh, we'll pick your brain on a few more sustainable topics. All right. Cheers. Hey, this is Rachel. Uh, welcome back. And I'm here today talking a bit about sustainable diets and international food guides. Wicked. Perfect. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thank this you, Rachel. Is, uh, it's been really good. So It's been really fun so far. We are, people are probably concerned right now because there was no brain break. It's okay. We're, We're trying something new. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to just go without the brain break. Yeah. We're looking for feedback. Uh, but we just have a lot of, we have a lot of questions about food, food yeah. guides and just food sustainability. So we just wanted to kind of jump into another conversation about our questions, kind of getting out our questions and then talking about some cool facts that you have. Because um, there's lots there's lots here that we have. No, oh, there's you know. there's so much here that we that, you know, from a place of naivety, Drake and I have no knowledge of. And so I think this is an excellent opportunity for us to ask some questions that, um, you know, are completely ignorant in many ways. And hopefully you can correct us on it's, them. It's the most <laughs> amazing thing because I'm completely ignorant or naive about food and I eat three to four times a day. <laughs> well, it's something that everybody does, but no one really, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I'm talking from my own perspective. Uh, I don't put a lot of effort or thought into where that food's coming from. And I'm realizing now that I probably should. But I think, I, I think what makes that so wonderful is that that's probably representative of the large portion of the population. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, as much as I joked about, you know, taking my bags to the grocery store, I'm, I'm just as ignorant about all of it. And, you know, I, I do try and make, good choices but you know there's lots of ways in which i could certainly be improving so yeah absolutely so i have a question for you rachel okay what is the worst fad diet that you've ever seen oh, <laughs> oh man i mean that depends again on what you mean by worst i've heard some horror stories of people who what's the worst fad diet you've participated I've in participated in? <laughs> is there any oh done the juice um, cleanse. i've done the juice, I've cleanse. Done the juice cleanse for a month and i wanted to kill myself <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty intense. So there's a lot of different diets out there. Yeah. And I personally am not a person of extreme, so I'm not even good with diets. I'm going to eat what I want to eat, and it's going to be well thought out, and it's going to be what's best for me. But I you know, diets, I'm really, really a skeptic at heart. So yeah. I never believe anybody when they say this is the thing that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if it's – and there's a lot of information. There's a lot of evidence out there for new diets, like the benefits of ketogenic or paleo yeah. or the uh, one of the new kind of really hot things right now is – is um, uh, intermittent fasting, yeah. you know. So there's good evidence out there that it works. It works for some people. Some diets do. And that's, again, going to be how it goes. I think we all need to take a bit more of a moderate approach when it comes to these food fads and, like, sure, give it a try. Yeah. But also uh, being an extremist in any direction, like only eating grapes for two weeks or, you know. The banana diet. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> This just has like negative nutritional quality for yeah. you, like as a hu- as a human being, you so know. So it's like, well, you know, one thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But one mm-hmm. thing that I always find really fascinating is, you know, I I think that there is, and you you touched on it earlier in the episode. Uh, you mentioned sort of the like the ice cream and like it's a soul food in some way, right? And yeah. so I think that there's actually a lot of benefit sometimes to saying, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna have that bowl of ice cream Eat because yeah. because that. Like that's good for my soul and that betters me and that helps my my health, mm-hmm. um, whether it be mental health or physical health, whatever. But I also think, you know, that I think touches perfectly on what you're saying, which is, you know, we can't, we shouldn't be going into these diets with these extreme, you know, sort of these extreme plans and that are unsustainable too, right? and rigidity. Like, like it's not sustainable. Exactly. And there's another dimension of sustainability is like, does it work for you as a person? Yeah. That's what I thought going in really when we were talking, like, yeah. talking, saying sustainable diets. Right. So my thought is these fad diets, uh, I know that juice cleanse, um, mm-hmm was not sustainable for me. <laughs> right. Well, you managed to get through a month of it, which is insanely impressive. My roommate and I only good. bought carrots, wow. spinach, and celery. Oh. <laughs> Got a juicer for Christmas. I it was pity a you. Month. Yeah. But, you know, so, so Rachel, a lot of my work is on um, physical activity and its uh, effects on cognition. Recently, I've been working on a study looking at diet and diet interventions on cognition. Um, but one thing that always comes to mind is, you know, we can't... It, 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 we, yeah, it would be great if, if we could encourage everybody to be super physically active or, or, you know, have a perfect diet where they're just eating nice, clean, healthy food all the time. But that's A, not sustainable, and B, not realistic. And I think that we have to take that into account as sort of ed- as academics and educators. We need to take that into account and say, hey, look, like that bowl of ice cream is fine. Don't do it as your dinner. It shouldn't be your only meal of the day. But there's no reason why you couldn't have it, you know, once a week. Right. Right? You're watching a movie, I'm going to have some ice cream. You know, like, and and being able to acknowledge that those things are okay. Exactly. Exactly. It's not restrictive. We're not reducing it down to certain things. It's, again, got to be a part. Here we are with the yes and or both and sort of solution is that, yes, have what you want, but also understand where it's coming from. Have a moderation. Have a think you know about what what it's doing to you and your body and like i am from the midwest the united states we eat a lot of dairy i couldn't just walk in and say hey everybody i'm vegan (laughs) and have that be well a like well maybe well received or be even like sustainable for me and my family and my choices and you know there are there's lots of evidence out there saying we're eating less you know meat or animal-based products. It's going to be better for us. It's going to be better for the environment. But there's nobody out there who has well-founded science saying that we should cut all of that off of our entire ecosystem. And we, we, have to, we have to have livestock. We have to have these parts of these systems to, they are a crucial piece. It's just, we need to change perhaps some of the way we're doing it so that it's better for the 
animals, better for us, better for our planet, you know, these other ways that we understand we can make these changes. We, Like I said, we can't swing to extremes. We can't, even if we're, everybody in the whole world stopped eating animal products, we wouldn't solve these other problems just because it's a system of things. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not just us. So it has to be part of a suite of things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We ask every guest if there's any mind-blowing facts, and usually they don't have any facts. And you had like a list of six, so. <laughs> and they're all on insects. So, <laughs> tell us about insects. Why is it so interesting? What's so cool about them? Yeah, I think that uh, well, as somebody who grew up in, on a Midwest diet, insects were never a part of my uh, cuisine. But I know that there are millions of people around the world that eat insects on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and it's their a primary source of protein and flavor and all these things. And uh, so I found it fascinating listening to other podcasts, reading other things about how sustainable insects can be as a protein source as a, you know perhaps not eating meat is a moral or ethical choice for some people and we draw different ethical lines around insects. how insects are and aren't sentient or worthy of moral consideration you know so yeah how many mosquitoes have i killed in my life without any remorse exactly <laughs> exactly so uh gratification right they're pests for a reason you know yeah. and so it's a it's another kind of framing of the way we think about what is and isn't food but as somebody who grew up in a Western diet, starting to think about insects as a viable option for protein sources and as a sustainable way, they use a lot less water. I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, yeah, but I they use you. a lot less water and they have uh, the ability to be grown in spaces that are, yeah, so like some 2 billion people consume insects regularly and they're 12 times more efficient than cattle at converting food into like edible protein as a source. And it's way more efficient than our ruminants like cattle. Uh, and 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 sheep, but also more efficient than pigs and chickens and all those things, just to get like eighty to ninety percent efficient turnover in the amount that they're consuming. And yeah, so and they use a ton less. I don't know exactly what it is, but they use it a lot less water as well. Oh, I mean, you could have like an entirely farm. sustainable, like in your backyard, you could have a cricket farm, and it'd be like entirely sustainable for you. You yep. could. I well, I used to work at a nonprofit where we built aquaponic systems. So that's growing fish and plants together. And then we also introduced insects into the system to help pollinate. And, uh, you know, there are other pest management things that go on because it's an ecosystem. But if you can find a way to grow, you know, a, a protein source, you can find a way to grow produce and greens and also have some viable insects to not only maybe feed your fish but to feed yourself or your chickens then you you know chickens eat insects as well and then you're creating these sort of closed loop systems and, and you yourself can do it like you're saying in your backyard yeah. we should all have like backyard gardens like <laughs> and then a little cricket farm and a little cricket on, farm on top. Yeah. yeah absolutely why not if, if you, you have a yard well yeah. you gotta have a yard but, <laughs> yeah. you know. if you find it easier to grind up some crickets than you do like to you know chop off a chicken head then yeah. maybe that's your way to go i think the problem yeah. is that not a lot of people do have that in them. right that's exactly. why we have that degree of separation go to the yeah. going to the supermarket yeah yeah right I and mean, that's a good system for a lot of people and we've fed and you know increased our prosperity ten thousand fold by having a lot of these options available to us so it's now just like starting to think about what benefits does that still have and how is that also impacted like the other things that go on in our world yeah absolutely hey i mean if you don't have a backyard you can still you know you can still have a cricket farm in your your bathroom your, yeah your, it's your, true your living room whatever you want yeah I, your bathtub i'm sure <laughs> would be sufficient space <laughs> but rachel again thank you for joining us on the show uh it's been a blast we've learned I've learned a ton. I didn't know anything about food guides and certainly international food guides. I didn't even know Canada had a new food guide. So maybe if yeah. we're smart, we'll include a link to it on our website mm-hmm. um, along with other information that we've discussed in this episode, as we always do. Uh, Rachel, how can our guests get in touch with you? Is there anything that you'd like to tell our guests to look out for? Uh, anything at all? Sure. 
you can find me on the university's website in my lab group. So I work with Dr. Jennifer Black and in the public health and urban nutrition fun lab uh, at uh, UBC here. So you can find me online there. Uh, and you'll probably also find my, uh, if you're Googling it, my family's llama farm. So we <laughs> have a, I grew up on a llama farm and we have some, some llamas if you're interested in some cute pictures. Uh, but yeah, that's that's all. Thanks that's for where having to find me, guys. You. Yeah, awesome. that's where to find me. Standing Rock Llamas. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rachel. Uh, if you've liked this episode, please uh, go back to wherever you found it, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or even on our website. Leave us a star or two, um, maybe a few more. If you feel like it, let us know what you thought. Leave a review. Uh, it helps us know what we've done well, what you'd like to see improved, and as well, gives future listeners a clue as to what they can expect when they tune in, which is always nice. Um, and with that, I think we can call it an episode. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Until we get you on next time, cheers. Cheers.